Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi. Again, that is the last book of the Old Testament in the English translation of the Bible. Malachi chapter 1, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 6 through 14. And this really, I believe, is a powerful, powerful portion of Scripture where the Lord will bring a charge of sin against the priests of Israel, and he will set forth to them how they have sinned and what is his judgment against that sin. Last week, we looked at the faithful love of God, and today we want to look at the fearful worship of God, the fearful worship of God. In the Old Testament, we find a lot of instruction as to um, worship. In the Old Testament, they worship through sacrifice, and so we drive a lot of that to the heart of worship as those who live under the new covenant. While the Old Testament is not always as straightforward and didactic as the New Testament, the Old Testament instruction on worship is often unmistakable. You can't miss it if you truly read and study the text. But not only do we see instruction as to the heart of worship, but the Old Testament gives us some of the most vivid illustrations of how the Lord feels about improper and impure worship as it is brought to Him by His people. And Malachi chapter 1 may not be the first text that you think of under that idea. You might go to Leviticus 10. Where, where we will consider at some point, Lord willing, this morning the story of Nadab and Abihu. But this text is just ripe with instruction and exhortation and implication for how we must come to worship the Lord. So with that, let's look at our text. It's a, it's a longer text. These verses are, are long, but please stand with me and let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Malachi chapter 1. We'll read verses 6 through 14. This is holy and inspired scripture, the word of the living God. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. 
And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what has been taken by robbery, what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is to be feared among the nations. May the Lord write his word upon our heart. You may be seated. Now, please join with me and let's go before the throne of grace of Yahweh, the great I am, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Our Father, you are in heaven, exalted above all things, above all people, above all creatures, above all creation. Your name is great, and you are worthy to be praised. You are the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, the great I am, the self-existing one who always was, who always is, and who always will be. You are the God of armies, where for all creation is submitted to your rule and your authority. The earth is the Lord's in all it contains. All that is around us belongs to you. Lord, as we look to your word, we're reminded of your great call for your people to worship you. We're reminded that you are holy, holy, holy And we are called to worship you in that holiness. We are called to come before you reverently with humble and pure hearts. We're called to give our lives as sacrifices, as offerings of worship and praise to you, Lord, knowing that we're not acceptable in and of ourselves, but that we are yours in Christ. And our offering is made acceptable because of the offering of our great high priest. So, Lord, as we consider all of the commands that you have for us in your word today, I pray that we would, more than all of that, that we would see Christ. That we would remember that we give sacrifices because he gave the ultimate sacrifice. May we remember that of ourselves, our our good deeds are but filthy rags before you, but in Christ they are a pleasing aroma. 
Lord, would you show us Christ in the Scriptures? Lord, would you show us our need to repent and to turn and to change and to be sanctified and to grow and to mature in Christ? Lord, I pray that we would have ears that are ready to hear the Word. Pray that our minds would be ready to receive it, that our hearts would be soft ground that is plowed up, ready for your word to be implanted in us. Lord, not that we might know more, but that we might be transformed by the truth. Lord, this is a miraculous work that you must accomplish by your Holy Spirit. We pray and we ask that your Spirit would come and move powerfully in and among your people. We pray that if there are those in our number today who do not know Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that for those of us in Christ, that we would receive Christ anew, that we would be conformed to his image, that we would put off sin and put on Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be magnified in us, your people, today. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the book of Malachi, again, is a prophecy of the Lord to his people, Israel. The, the whole of the book is presented kind of as this back and forth where the Lord is the primary speaker. The Lord is doing really all of the speaking, but he makes a charge. He brings something to the table about his people, and then the Lord himself says what is in the hearts of men, how they would respond to that statement. And so that is really the whole of this book. It's that back and forth where the Lord says, I've loved you. How have you loved us? You have despised my name. You have defiled the table. You have brought evil worship before me. Well, how have we done that, Lord? The whole of the book is this back and forth. And the responses of the people of God almost always, and until we kind of get towards the end of the book, reveal the hardness of their hearts. And so that's our first charge today. May we hear the word of God, and may our hearts be softened, may our hearts be humble, and may we receive the truth. The Lord began this prophecy by declaring his love for Israel, and then he immediately moves to dealing with the height of sin in his people, the height of sin in that he proclaims and declares their arrogance and the impurity of their worship. They have profaned the worship of the living and true God. How much of that profaning goes on in so-called churches today? May it not be so of us. While the focus of the text here is on the priestly sacrifice, and so the Lord's charge is directed at the priest, we understand that we can bring that to the heart of worship today. The Lord makes clear that He is not pleased with, and He will not accept impure, undevoted, unrighteous, ungodly worship from his people, nor will he accept the ungodly and impure sacrifices of the priest. 
Now, the priest is kind of the tie-in to help us jump from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New Testament and the New Covenant. Think back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter tells us that we, the church, we collectively as a people are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, a holy priesthood who offers up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. We are the priesthood today. And so just as we consider what the priests did in Malachi's day, we must consider ourselves as priests giving sacrifices of worship to the Lord today. We know that they're only acceptable in Christ, but they must be pure. They must be right. They must be in accordance with and in submission to the Scriptures. As we study all of Scripture, we always have to determine how the Scripture points to Christ. In the New Testament, we can look back to His first coming or might be looking forward to His second coming. In the Old Testament, we're always looking forward. It's either a foreshadowing of Christ in His first coming or a prophecy of His return or it's the types and the shadows of what Christ would do. We must draw the Scripture back to Christ And this idea of the New Testament priesthood, the church, is our tie-in to Christ. Because our sacrifices are only acceptable when they are made by those who are washed in His blood. If you're not washed in the blood of Christ, your sacrifice is nothing but vile, evil, wickedness toward God. So we are a royal priesthood. And so when we think about the Lord's charges to the priest, we must understand that our very duty today is to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, pure and acceptable to the Lord. And so that's where we can kind of tie in and set ourselves a a thesis, a, a purpose statement for how we'll work through this text. We see that we must fear God as king We must serve Him as our Master, and we must worship Him as redeeming Lord by giving our lives as reverent, devoted, pure sacrifices. We fear Him as King, we serve Him as Master, and we worship Him as redeeming Lord. That ties us into Christ, and we do that by giving our lives as reverent, holy, pure, devoted sacrifices. So that's, that's the course, that's the goal as we look at this text is to see how we do that, to see how it was not being done by the priest of Israel in Malachi's day and how we might avoid their same sins and worship God rightly, fearfully, reverently worship God. So the Lord is the primary speaker in this text. So we're going to kind of consider this from his statements, from his viewpoint, we're going to see the Lord's position. We're going to see the Lord's charge. We're going to see the Lord's judgment and the Lord's resolution. This text, again, it's long, it's lengthy. It doesn't follow a super clean outline, but those can kind of be thoughts that we can hang our minds on to to help us press through the text. So let's begin at verse 6. Verse 6, the Lord's position. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, 
who despise my name. So there's two titles. There's two positions of the Lord that he makes clear, that of father and that of master. One, I think that is that is very informal, a familial relationship, and then one that is a more formal relationship of the slave and master. So he begins by saying he is a father. What do you think the, the Jews would think of when they heard the thought of the Lord being their father? Surely they would go back to the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That is how the Jews were taught to think of and honor and respect their father. For the Lord is our father. We're begotten by God through the work of Christ, and we are born anew into God's kingdom as God's children. He is our Father. And Scripture makes very clear the difference, the dividing line between those who are children of God and those who are children of Satan. Consider Jesus' words from John chapter 8. He said, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. You are of your Father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your Father. So let's stop right here and ask ourselves, because God says, if I'm a father, where is my honor? Is God your father? Do you love Jesus Christ, or do you desire to do the deeds of your father, who is Satan? There are no evil deeds desired by the child of God. Now, of course, we will battle with sin, but what is the the mark of your life? Do you desire sin? Or do you love Christ and desire to honor Him? Either God is your Father or Satan is your Father. There are no in-betweens. You're either a child of God and your life reflects that, or you're a child of Satan and your life clearly reflects it by your vile, wicked living. The Lord says, if I'm a Father, where is my honor. Where is my honor? He has treated Israel as his children. He has called them as his own, and yet they respond with anything but giving honor to his name. The Lord says, I have chosen you. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. I have adopted you through Jacob all the way back to Abraham as my children. Now, where is my honor as your father? I've loved you, and I have chosen you, and you've responded with ingratitude. You've responded with hard hearts, with grumbling and complaining and indifference. If I'm a father, where is my honor? I've chosen and adopted you, the Lord says, but you have despised and rejected my magnified and glorious name. And so that's then where the Lord goes from this tenderness of the relationship of a father to what I think is kind of a contrast here of the formality of the relationship between a slave and a master, from from family to the workplace. He says, okay, so I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where is my respect? Where is your fear of your master? Where is the reverence that you should have 
to my name. What becomes clear, the Lord is driving home that he takes authority and submission to authority very seriously. We are to submit ourselves to the Lord because that is his design. We submit to the Lord through the truth of his word by living our lives in accordance to his commands, period. This is God's world. It's God's design. It's God's intent. It's God's purpose. We submit and we submit to him with reverence, with honor, with respect. But what was evidenced by the living of Israel? He says, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. And that's kind of Malachi's choice word, the Lord's choice term in referring to himself throughout this prophecy. You'll constantly see the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, Yahweh Sabaoth, the great I am, the God of armies. He says, I am the God of armies. I am the great master over all things. And where is my respect? Where is your fear of the most high God? The Lord seems to be reminding his people of his authority over them. Reminding all of creation of his authority over them because he is the God of all and he has armies and he will bring them to make war against sin and evil. So if you would like to sit here today hard-hearted in your sin, remember that the Lord will bring his armies to make war against sin and the Lord will win that battle. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, and those who die in their sins will follow their father, the devil, to hell forever and ever. So again, come back to that question. Are you of your father, the Lord God, or are you of your father, the devil? So this is really the Lord's introduction to his charge against these priests. He sets himself up as the rightful head and the rightful authority. And this must be the beginning point of our fearful worship of God. We must rightfully see and rightfully understand who the Lord is. He is creator. He is ruler. He is sovereign. He is master. He is Lord. He is father. And he is judge. Right doctrine, this right knowledge of who God is, always precedes right worship. To worship God rightly, you must know who He is. But we can kind of flip that around a little bit and understand that right doctrine must always produce right worship. Really, you can't have right doctrine if it doesn't produce right worship, because you must be missing something if it doesn't drive you to your knees in reverent worship of the King of kings and Lord of lords when you see who he is in the pages of Scripture. The two cannot be separated, doctrine and response, doctrine and worship, knowledge of the truth and humble response to a holy God. The Lord has authority over how we worship him. That's kind of what we'll see throughout the rest of the text. 
Think about Jesus' words in John chapter 4. He said that the Father will seek those who are true worshipers. True worshipers that worship in spirit and in the truth. Then Jesus says, we must worship in spirit and in truth. The Lord demands it. He calls for it and he demands it. Worship in spirit and in truth, that's really... Uh, an entire separate message for another day. But we understand that worship in spirit and in truth is worship that is from the heart. It it is with expressiveness. Now, that expressiveness needs to be reverent and controlled, but it's a joy and a worship and a rejoicing that comes out because you see who God is and you want to worship and praise and glorify Him. So it's with expressiveness, but it's in submission to God's truth and God's requirements. Again, we could, we could pull on several, several strings here, but for the sake of time, let's just leave that there, that we worship in spirit and in truth. It's spirit welling up in us, overflowing with joyful worship, but it's joyful worship in the way that the Lord outlines and shows in the pages of Scripture. So that's the Lord's position. Moving to the end of verse 6, all the way through verse 9, we can see the Lord's charge. The Lord's charge really against these priests. He he says, you priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? The Lord says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? The Lord says, in that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? So really we can describe the Lord's charge here thinking about three terms. I think there's three terms here, despised, defiled, and evil. Those kind of outline where the Lord goes with his charge towards the priest. He begins by telling them that they have despised his name. They have despised his name and they have despised and defiled the table of the Lord, the altar of the Lord where the priest would come and give sacrifices. He says that table, that altar is despised and defiled by the way that you give your offerings. To despise here means to regard someone with contempt, to have this haughty and arrogant mindset to someone where, where you reject them, where you consider them worthless. And so the Lord says, you have despised my name. You've come before me and presented offerings, the Lord says, that are so worthless, that are so sinful, that are so outside the bounds of what I've told you to do, that you show that all you do is hold me in contempt. All you do is disrespect and dishonor and hate the Lord your God who is high and mighty and holy, and worthy of these right and good and prescribed offerings. Arrogantly and unashamedly, 
What are the people responding? And this is the Lord speaking uh, on their behalf. He says, but you say, how have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? There is no reverence. There is no fear of God in these men. And the same can be said for so many in the world around us today. The same can be said for so many who lead and who operate in so-called churches today. There is no fear of God. There's no reverence. And again, we can always stop and ask the question, is that true of my life? Is there anything in my life that evidences that same fact that I don't fear God in general or in any specific area? What, what leads to that? What, what makes us live in such a way that would show that we don't fear God? Psalm 36, verse 1. King David here writes, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart, and there is no fear of God before his eyes. Transgression speaks to the evil man in his heart, and there's no fear of God before him. Why do we not fear God as we should? Because we love our sin. That is the evidence of not fearing God, and that is the cause of not fearing God. If you don't love God, you walk in your sin, and because you want to run headlong into your sin, you do not fear the Most High God. So they have despised His name. They have also defiled His table. You are presenting defiled food on my altar, but how have we defiled you, the people say? Defiled speaks of that which is polluted, that which is stained, that which is impure. So again, ask the question, when have I offered that from my life which is stained or polluted or impure? It's a humbling exercise to, to ask that question and follow it through to an answer. They have desecrated the table of the Lord by not offering a consecrated, holy, and pure offering to Him. And how does the Lord describe that? Verse 8, He says, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? what the people do. They bring that which is cheap and easy and does not require sacrifice, and they offer it to the Lord, and the Lord has but one description, and that is that it's evil. So let me tell you, if your Christian life is easy, it's probably because there's some sin and some evil and some wickedness in your life, because to give yourself as a pure and holy sacrifice means there's going to be difficulty. You will have to strain. You will have to cut off the arm of the flesh. You will have to put away sin and put on Christ continually, day by day and moment by moment. And if you don't do that, what you offer the Lord is evil, sinful, and it's wicked. We must put off those things. And this is where we see the heart motive. The people bring their blind, and they're lame, and they're worthless, and they say, Here, Lord, this is what we bring you to sacrifice. You are the great God of all, and yet the best we can give you, when we have better, 
The best we will give you is those that are sick or lame or otherwise polluted and impure. Really, ultimately, what this is is no sacrifice at all. It's no sacrifice at all. But what does the Lord require? He requires the first fruits. Exodus 23, verse 19. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. The choice first fruits. Not whatever you deem appropriate. Not whatever you get to the end of the harvest and say, this is what I can spare but that which is the best, and that which is the first, that which is choice, that is what you give to the Lord. That goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. Verse 4, Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Abel brought what the Lord commanded, and the Lord received his offering. Think about offerings. Think about Christ. Think about the offering of the great high priest, Jesus, for the payment for your sin. The great high priest offered himself as the Lamb of God for your sin. 1 Peter 1.19 says, You were redeemed with precious blood. You're redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's what the Lord paid to redeem you. But what do you give him in return? You run into verse 8, and then into verse 8, and then into verse 9. The Lord says, would you give this to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly? Are you now coming to entreat God's favor? Are you coming to ask the Lord for his favor when you bring this, this sinful, wicked, evil offering? He says, will the Lord receive you kindly? The answer, as we'll see in a moment, is absolutely not. Would you come to the Lord, again, just think about this and ask yourself this question. Would you come to the Lord and ask Him for His favor upon your life when you know the description of your offering is somewhere in line with the descriptions we've seen thus far? That you don't give the Lord your best. You don't give Him of the choice first fruits of your life. Would you then be so arrogant? Would you then so lie against the truth and ask the Lord for his blessing when you can't even bring yourself to die daily and give your life to live for Christ? Surely we see all of these applications. Your, your mind, I hope, is, is being flooded with, with thoughts about how this can work itself out in your life. Think about Acts chapter 5. Talk about extreme story of Ananias and Sapphira when they are, are part of the early church. They go and they sell a piece of property and they come and they say, yeah, we're giving all of the proceeds to the Lord and to the church. 
when really they had buried some of the proceeds in the ground to keep back for themselves, how did the Lord respond? That was their offering. It was deceitful, it was full of lies, and it was full of holding back. And how did the Lord respond? He struck them dead instantly and immediately. He judged their sin. He purified his people when in and among his people was such wicked vileness. That should sober us. That should humble us. That should cause us to examine our lives. So think, think about some ways. Let, let's talk about some examinations of our lives when we think about that in light of worship. Firstly, just think about the whole of your life. Again, we've said you are to give your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Are you doing that? Are you doing that with the, with the whole of your life, in the workplace, in the home, in your service to the church, in how you love your children, and how you love your spouse, and how you love your family and your friends? Are you giving all of your life, the best of your life, as a living sacrifice to the Lord? Think about the attention that you give to worship, specifically the attention that you give to corporate worship. What does your Saturday look like? And don't hear this to be some legalistic set of, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, but overall, the whole of your life, what does your Saturday look like when you're preparing to come here on Sunday for corporate worship? Do you stop and read the scriptures? Do you meditate on the truth of, of who God is and what he has done for you in Christ? Do you spend time repenting of sin and knowing that we are coming before the holy God, before his throne of grace to sing praises and to worship him in spirit and in truth through singing, through reading, through praying, and through the teaching and preaching of his word? How do you prepare for that? I know many of you men, and I know if you have a big meeting at work on Tuesday, you're going to spend the better part of Monday preparing for that meeting. You will make time to be ready. I know many of you ladies, if you're having company over to your house, you will spend your day preparing your home to host that company. When you're going before the Lord to worship, how do you prepare yourself? Sunday mornings, if you have small children, and even if you don't, Sunday mornings can be pretty chaotic to get out the door and get somewhere. So how do you prepare Saturday? How do you prepare Sunday morning? How do you come ready to worship? Examine your giving. Uh, that's something I don't know that we've talked about a whole lot the last few years. Examine the way that you give to the church. A point in question, how do you make your budget? If you budget in your home, how is that budget set up? Do you, do you give of the first fruits to the Lord's work and to the Lord's church? Because our giving is an act of worship, and we're to give sacrificially. So do you order your home and your life in such a way that you give to the Lord from your first fruits and that you give to Him sacrificially? You know, that, that's one of, I think, the, maybe the main takeaway here is the Lord does not require some grandiose offering in any of these things. What He requires is faithfulness. What He requires is sacrifice. What he requires, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, is a cheerful giver. Do you give in all of these areas? 
to give cheerfully to the Lord. So that's the Lord's charge. What about the Lord's judgment? The Lord's judgment, verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates so that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. So again, stop and just consider what the Lord says. That should sober your mind. He says, your offering is so polluted. Your offering, O priest, O people, is so polluted and so sinful and so worthless. I wish you would shut the doors and stop kindling worthless fire on my altar because I'm not pleased with your sacrifice It does not glorify me, and I wish that you would stop. How crushing is that to think about? How crushing would it be to live your entire life thinking that you're maybe on the narrow way, that you've went through the narrow gate, and you think you're living for and serving the Lord, but then you get to the throne at the end, And the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness, you worker of iniquity. He says, I'm not pleased with you. I don't receive your offering because your offering was in vain. Because your offering was not one covered in the blood of Christ. I do not know you, depart from me. It's effectively what he says to the priests here. Depart from me. Don't kindle fire on my altar because I do not receive your worship. Calvin commented here, he said, the priests conducted themselves very shamefully in their office, and the people had become so hardened through their example so that the whole of religion was disregarded. The the whole of the old covenant religion was based around this system of sacrifice. The Lord says, I wish that you would just stop. Because the priest, these leaders of God's people, had led so shamefully that the people had become so hardened that their worship was not pleasing to God. This is the burden of leadership. This is the burden of leadership within God's people, but it's also the burden of leadership in your own home. Shameful leadership produces hard hearts. Hard hearts produce irreverent polluted, impure worship. So, especially directed to the men, but also to the women, how are you leading those entrusted to your care? Are you leading shamefully in such a way that you harden hearts? Because those hardened hearts will produce irreverent, unpleasing worship. And the Lord has extreme responses to impure worship. Lord says, I'm not pleased with you. Could there be a more cutting, a more fearful statement to hear from the King of kings and Lord of lords? I'm not pleased from, with you. Lord says he has no pleasure. He has no delight in these people, in their priests, in their worship, in their offerings. What, could, what good could come of the end of those who the Lord is not pleased with? Flip that question around. 
What does the Lord delight in? Psalm 51, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the Lord's pleasure and joy in His people. It's not in the external action. It's the heart that drives the external action. He desires, He delights in the fact that you humble yourself before Him, that your heart is broken over your sin, and you come in reverent contrition, in reverent repentance for your sin, like David, with tears, begging the Lord to purify you for your sin because you know you have sinned against a holy God. That's what pleases the Lord. That's what the Lord delights in. The Lord always requires external action that flows from an internal heart of repentance and purity and holiness. Again, they can't be separated. They can't be broken. A change of heart leads to a change of action. Hebrews 10.38 tells us more of what pleases the Lord. The Lord says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. A righteous one shall live by faith. The life of faith pleases the Lord. It is a bold and unwavering faith. He says the one that doesn't shrink back, the one who stands boldly and firmly upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. You stand in that faith. That faith then produces good works, and you walk in those good works that the Lord prepared beforehand for you to walk in them, and then the Lord is pleased. Then you find the Lord's pleasure. Romans 6, 13, the Lord says, Present yourselves to God. Give your lives as a sacrifice. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Present the instruments of your body as instruments of righteousness. That is the sacrifice of God that brings Him pleasure That is the sacrifice that will allow you to avoid the judgment that we see here. So we've seen the Lord's position. We've seen His charge. We've seen His judgment. And then in the rest of this passage, what we really see is the Lord's resolution. His resolution in light of of His position and His charge and His judgment. He has resolved to carry out what is deserved by the unholy sacrifices of his people. Look at verse 11. From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Firstly, this is his regard resolving his position. My name will be great. The Lord will be praised. Why is the Lord's name to be great? Psalm 111, the works of his hands are truth and justice. All of his precepts are sure. They're upheld forever and ever. 
They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever and ever. Holy and awesome is his name. That is why his name will be great among the nations. How is his name to be made great among the nations? Sacrifices of incense are are given to him, and a grain offering that is pure. An offering that is pure. That goes back to what we've seen from the beginning. The Lord requires offerings that are pure. He must be worshipped in fear and reverence and holiness and purity. If you desire to make the name of the Lord great, it begins begins with being in Christ, but then with living a holy, set-apart, pure life. If we were to make the name of the Lord great, it begins with us taking daily steps to be pure, to be holy, and to be righteous. And we do all that knowing that He's the one that brings it to pass. It's not, it's not our strength. We don't walk in the strength that we supply, but we walk in His grace, in the strength that He supplies, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk about a pure offering. Uh, turn with me, if you'd like to read along, back to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. This is, I think, a well-known story, but one that requires some attention at this point. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they took their respective fire pans after putting fire in them. They placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. And so Aaron kept silent. I will be treated as holy, and by all the people, I will be honored. What did Nadab and Abihu do that did not treat the Lord as holy and honor him? It wasn't that they were coming to give a sacrifice because that was their duty. But look at the end of verse 1. They gave a sacrifice that was a strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. They gave something that was outside the bounds of what the Lord commanded his people to give. Again, there's So much that could be said with that idea in regards to corporate worship and how we're to worship the Lord. I think I'll give a quick plug. When um, Dr. Scott Annual comes at the end of October, I think he's going to take on some of those ideas. So I won't address them in depth today. But just understand that the way we worship matters to the Lord. We worship as he has prescribed We worship as he has commanded. We worship in accordance with the examples that he gives us in the scripture. So the Lord is resolved in in regard to his position that his name will be great 
And he's resolved in his charge against the priest. Verse 12, Malachi 1 says, But you are profaning my name, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, My, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame and sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand? says the Lord. Now, if you're tracking along with the text, this should really give you some pause. It should really give you a a little bit of hesitation just to think about what the Lord says here, what, what he says about his people, what he says their response is. My, how tiresome it is. They treat the Lord with contempt and disdain. This is the hardness of heart and the ingratitude and the wickedness, the depth of the wickedness of these people that were supposed to be set apart as God's people. And when we see that, one response that we should have is a response of humility. A response like David In Psalm 8, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Lord, what am I? Who am I that you would take my heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that then loves you and desires to rightfully worship you? Lord, what have I done to merit this? And the answer, of course, is absolutely nothing. But the Lord has placed his love upon his people. He has called us out. He has set us apart. He has put his spirit within us. Friends, when you read this type of hardness of heart, rather than looking smugly at these people who are so deep in sin, my, how we should be humbled. How we should praise the Lord for his kindness toward us. Examine your heart and ensure that you do not see your service to the Lord as tiresome or burdensome or something that you hate or that you treat with contempt. Dear friend, examine your heart. Examine your heart, and if that is the case, you need to repent. The Lord is also resolved in his judgment. Verse 14, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. This describes the way that you offer your life as a sacrifice to the Lord. Again, I say repent and return to the Lord. You you have a sacrifice to give. You vow it to the Lord, then you don't give it. You say, Lord, I will give you my life. That's what we say at salvation, right? Lord, my life is yours. And yet then you give him less. Dear friend, repent and return to the Lord. The Lord says, my name will be great. My name is great. And so that kind of brings us full circle back to where we began. Fear the Lord as king. Serve him, submit to him as your master. 
Worship him as your redeeming Lord by giving all of your life to him as a living, pleasing, holy, acceptable sacrifice. It's what the Lord requires, that we biblically worship him, that we, in submission to Scripture, give our lives as sacrifices to him. This applies both as we're gathered as a church and applies in our lives individually. So I'll close with three questions and then a scripture, and then we'll pray. Does your life day to day and does our worship display a reverence, a reverent fear of God as our king? Does your life and does our worship show and display a reverence towards the Lord as our king? Does your life and does our worship show devoted service to God as our master? And does your life and does our worship proclaim him as redeeming Lord and cause us to give ourselves as a pure, pleasing sacrifice? That's what the Lord requires. And you say, what, what drives all of this? Psalm 119, one of the most glorious chapters in all of Scripture, Psalm 119, verse 38. The psalmist says, Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence of you. All of worship comes under that idea of the Lord establishing his word to and in his people. It's the word that produces reverence. Reverence produces worship that pleases God and lives that please God. So may his name be great among us, his people. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we ask.